Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Right now, in the heavenly presence, the angelic host proclaims on repeat the following words. Holy, holy, holy. And it's not a mechanistic, robotic, forced phrasing. This is the constant amazement of God's creatures at the holiness and righteousness of God. Creatures who have not felt the sting of sin like you and I have, these morally uncompromised beings are forever amazed at the holiness of God. And they have done so since the dawn of creation, continually before the throne of God. They are repeating these three words. R.C. Sproul points out that there's no other attribute of God that is thrice repeated uh, like this, holy, holy, holy. God, we never hear in the scriptures, righteous, 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 or omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. We don't see that. We see this constant declaration of the holiness of God around his throne. We see this on multiple occasions throughout the scriptures. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 4. This constant pronouncement of the holiness of God. It is a warning to those sinful beings that out there that they, they cannot enter into the un, or to righteousness of God's presence in their unrighteousness. You and I need this warning this morning. We need to be reminded that this God that we approach now, that we want to learn from, is clothed and shrouded in holiness, that there's glory in his presence such that uh, Paul describes that he dwells in inapproachable light, that you and I cannot in our sinfulness enter into his presence without there being drastic and serious consequence. I'm going to frame that this morning because what happens here in Exodus 19 is a change of pace from what we've seen in Exodus 1 through 18. If Exodus 1 through 18 uh, presents a problem and solution, the problem being uh, Israel's uh, God's people, Israel, are enslaved to a foreign people that are treating them harshly and ruling over them, the solution being God's self-revelation to Moses, his deliverance of Israel, we see a pivoting here in Acts chapter 19. Focus changes. The delivering God starts to disclose His holiness to Israel. In so doing, He gives them a set of standards, a test by which they must abide. There are rules for relating to others. There's rules for relating to God, rules for how to build this apparatus for worship. All of this is an expression of God's holiness and the need for man's obedience. I'm kind of a music nerd. So I hear the story of Van Halen. When Van Halen was touring, they had written into their contract that they only wanted green M&Ms to be in their uh, waiting room. And you think, well, that's kind of precocious, right? Why do you only like, they all taste the same. Why, why do you only want green M&Ms? But it came out later on that they used that as a marker to indicate whether the, the 
the owner of the venue had taken the contract seriously or not. They knew if they, only, they saw multicolored M&Ms in the bowl in the waiting room that they have to be careful about the pyrotechnics because my, not all things might be in order. See, that stipulation allowed them to immediately understand what was happening in that situation. And it's the same this morning that our obedience actually kind of shows our understanding of God's holiness. See, this is what we're going to see this morning. A holy God manifests himself to his consecrated people. A holy God manifests himself to his consecrated people. In verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that God instructs his people for consecration. We're going to see that word used four times in these first 15 verses, this idea that we should set ourselves apart to the work of God. Israel was going to set themselves apart to what God wanted to do in their midst. And then in verses 16 through 25, we're going to see that God manifests himself to the consecrated. So he calls for consecration in the first half, and then he manifests himself in the second half. We want to dive in this morning. We want to pull out these important things that God has for us. Let's start in verses 1 through 15, that God instructs his people for consecration. Now, first we start in verses 1 through 8. Look at verse 1 with me. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Israel and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people's for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, the first thing happens here is that Israel comes to the mountain of God in verses 1 and 2. Now, here's that literary marker. There's something happening in our text. First, notice that he gives us dates, right? The, the time is mentioned. It's the third full moon. It's been some three months since these Israelites have left Exodus, and Moses is kind of cluing us into the timeline. He's kind of changing our perspective and, and showing us exactly what timeline we're on. The second thing he does is he gives us a location, but this location isn't new, but he assumes that it's new, right? In verse 19, he's saying, uh, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out the land of Egypt, then on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, but they had already been there. In fact, if we looked back into chapter 18, verse 5, they also had taken, the events of 18.5 had taken place in this same location. So Moses is kind of reorienting us to a different timeline and a different perspective. The upshot is that beginning in chapter 19, we're changing emphases. Uh, what was a story about God's deliverance of his people is now becoming a story of God's dwelling with his people. And so Sinai is this place where Moses is going to give his people the Ten Commandments, the law, as it were. It's also got another name. Mount Sinai has another name, Mount Horeb. It's where uh, God introduced himself to Moses in this flaming bush of fire that never burned up. In fact, God convinces Moses to do what he says by promising him a sign that he'll bring him back to this mountain with all the people of Israel in chapter 3, verse 12. See, notice Moses goes up the hill 
while Israel remains below. We've almost become too comfortable with this distinction between Moses and Israel, haven't we? Uh, but the text makes this intentionally here. He, he describes in verse 2, the Israel camp, encamped before the mountain, and verse 3, while Moses went up to God. There's a clear delineation of what's happening here so that Moses is separate from Israel, a, a favored servant. He's kind of set off and set apart from all the rest of the Israelites, such that as Exodus 18 showed us, he's maxed out, he's stressed out, he's got too much work on his plate. See, what happens is that God wants to send a people via Moses, or send a message to his people via Moses. Now look at what this verses say in verses 3 through 6, this message that Moses wants to say. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall keep my or be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. See, there's three different things that Moses is to tell the Israelites. The first is that God has delivered him, delivered Israel, that is. And there's three different descriptions of what that is. First, he says, you remember and you saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians, right? They were witnesses to the Red Sea collapsing on the enemies. They were witnesses to these 10 plagues that miraculously happened. He had shown them his saving work, his miraculous defeat. And so God has saved Israel by being victorious. And then secondly, how I bore you on eagles' wings. Picture here is protection, just as an eagle uh, might just pick one up and, and deliver them to avoid danger. So God has delivered these Israelites. And the picture is that God who saves by his deliverance. And then finally, he brought them to himself. He brought them to this mountain, to Mount Sinai, just as Moses reflected in Exodus 15 that God brings them in and he plants them on the mountain of God. So he's bringing Israel here to his presence. But notice what God says next. It's not just that he saved them. It's that he's calling them to this obedience in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed be, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. See, the commandments are twofold, right? Obey God's voice. Keep his covenant. Israel already had this covenant with God through Abraham. If you remember that back in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised to make Abraham a great nation, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And this is kind of an expansion of that covenant. What God is about to do is kind of expand on this promise made to Israel with these laws of, of how to abide with him. And the outcome of this obedience is a unique relationship with God. Look what he says in verse 5, that they would be a treasured possession. Even though God possessed all the earth, Israel was kind of the apple of his eye, right? I remember being a kid, and I would collect these baseball cards, right? Maybe you're, okay, so I'm a nerd. Let's just all acknowledge that, right? I collected a lot of baseball cards. And when you talked about your baseball cards, you didn't talk about all, all the little uh, valueless one. You had one card that you were immensely proud of, and you laid that on the table and said, this is the thing I'm most proud of. Israel is God's treasured possession. Israel is the one that is the identifier of God, that they, he has laid his blessing upon them. See that why this is the case in verse 6. 
Israel is God's priesthood for all the world. Look at verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now we're getting somewhere, huh? Even though Moses would go up and down this mountain seven times in these coming chapters, seven times Moses would transgress or transverse up and down this mountain time and time again. What God is saying to Israel is that all Israel would converse with God like Moses, and they would represent him to the world. Moses' uniqueness, that splitting off as Israel sits at the bottom of the mountain and Moses goes up, someday all Israel would climb the mountain, as it were. That God would make a nation of priests for himself. So what happens in verses 7 and 8 is that Israel obeys or commits to obey the Lord's command. Look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered and said together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. See, Moses comes down the mountain. Israel agrees to do everything God asks. And it's worth noting that they don't even know what he's asked them to do yet. There's been no statement of the law. There's been nothing that's been transpired. It's just that Israel's like, we want a part of what God is doing. We want to be involved with this God who's delivered us. But Moses now, in the second half of verse 8, goes back up the mountain to hear from God again. Look at verse 8 again with me. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. He goes back up the mountain, reports back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits before the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So Moses reports Israel's words to the Lord, and then he comes and, and into God's presence again in verse 9, and, and the Lord tells him this, that he's coming in thick cloud so that everyone will be able to hear him. Notably, he's going to shroud his presence, his holiness, his glory, so that he cannot be fully seen. And verses 10 through 13, he gives this call to Moses to consecrate the people of Israel. Because God's coming in his holiness, in this thick cloud of his holiness, Israel is going to need to consecrate themselves. That's one of those weird words, right? What's it mean to consecrate ourselves? It's not a, a word that we use much today. It simply means to belong to the sphere of the sacred. It's to be set apart from that which is common, right? In our house uh, for a while, we had these two pitchers that came as a pack, right? These pitchers hold water, right? One, I would make the absolutely righteous production of sweet tea, which is just 
the nectar of the gods, right? And in the other, I would mix, um, what is it, Roundup, right? So you wanted to keep those two distinct, right? You don't want to mix those two together. See, you could make the sweet tea in one and you could enjoy it, but if you mixed it in the one that had Roundup in it, that was not a good thing to do. That's why we would keep one in the kitchen and one out in the garage, See, God wanted these Israels to be Israelites to be set aside for his purpose and to confuse the two things, the things that were designated for the Lord's purpose and the things that weren't designated for the Lord's purpose could result in certain death. So what does this consecration then entail? It seems that they were they were supposed to at least wash their clothes, right? Like maybe some of you ladies have had a bad day and you're saying, I, I washed my hair for this or whatever. But God is calling upon these Israelites to say, hey, you need to get ready for this. And it doesn't certainly just limit itself to washing their clothes. But imagine they've been out in the wilderness for three months. They probably had worked up a good stench or something like, right? So they had to wash themselves. But it went beyond that because in verse 15, it seems like when Moses is speaking, he's telling them not even to go near a woman. Uh, in other places in the scriptures, like Jacob and his sons in, in Genesis 35, they, they uh, purified themselves by getting rid of their idols before they were going to go to, to go to Bethel and supposedly meet God. Also, this word is used in, in uh, Le- Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. God uses Moses and tells them that they, they're supposed to be consecrated. They're supposed to be set apart. They had disobeyed. See, the term seems to entail just this Pre, well, preoccupation, as it were, with obeying the words of God. If we're to consecrate ourselves, we want to obey what God has been instructing us to do. And so the Lord gives these instructions for his coming on the third day. The, the people are to, to wash their garments. They're supposed to not go up on this mountain or even to touch it in verse 13. And if anything touches it, in verse 13, they're supposed to be put to death without any kind of touch. Like you're not supposed to touch this individual because that that holiness is like toxic, right? If you touch it, you'll also be put to death and that will kind of be ongoing. And so God has these very specific directions about how to deal with all of this. In verses 14 through 15, we see Moses relay this to the people of Israel. He's calling them to be consecrated. He's saying, hey, listen, the holiness of God is coming. You've got to get prepared. You've got to get ready. And so Moses comes down the mountain, tells the Israelites to, to consecrate themselves, to wash their garments. And more specifically, Moses tells them to stay away from women, which we assume is the abstinence of, of sexual relationships. Not that sex is dirty. It's not anything like that. I think Calvin summarizes it well. He says they were to be reminded that all earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced, that they might give their entire attention to the hearing of the law, that these people were to consecrate themselves, to set themselves aside. And the one thing that might cause their head to turn might be their own sexuality. So they're they're actually called to turn away from that for a period of time. It reminds us when Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 7 that a husband and wife might abstain from sexual relationships for a time so that they can devote themselves to prayer. Sometimes we lay aside these physical desires so that we can orient ourselves to the spiritual realities of the holiness of God. I remember once a son was playing soccer. It was one of his first years. And 
this teammate of his, we'll call him Parker. I don't know why, but we'll call him Parker. Parker is trying to turn the ball up the sideline and go toward his goal. And he's right in front of all of the parents from our team. And so he's got 27 coaches sitting there going, Parker, turn the ball, turn the ball, buddy, turn the ball. And Parker in the middle of the game stops and he goes, I'm trying, you know? See, the problem was this poor kid had way too many coaches. And I've seen it before. These kids, you know, the parents telling them one thing, the coaches telling them another, and there's this confusion in their own head. See, the player needs to be set apart for the plans of the coach. The player needs to be tuned in to what the coach is telling him to do, and they need to zero in on the voice of what exactly that coach wants them to accomplish. You and I need to be consecrated. We need to be tuned in to the voice of our Lord. See, our holiness before God is our obedience to His truth. The the Scriptures consistently speak this way. Leviticus 11, God spells out all of these rules for what the Israelites are supposed to eat, right? You're not supposed to eat things that have uh, you know, all these different qualifications. They weren't to eat camels or eagles or certain kinds of things that were in the waters or whatever else. And in the midst of this teaching, in the midst of this instruction, God says this, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. Why don't you eat camels? Why don't you eat eagles? Why don't you eat these different foods because God's holy and I'm to be holy as he's holy he's given me instruction I need to obey Peter quotes the same thing in first Peter chapter 1 verse 15 he says but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in your conduct it's the conduct that is our holiness or an aspect of our holiness. See, as God gives His directives, our obedience to the directives becomes an expression of our holiness. We don't natively possess holiness like God. We don't dwell in inapproachable light. But according to how these scriptures speak, we take on a form of God's holiness when we obey His words. And so we just stop for a second. We consider when someone says, no, I understand that the scriptures say this. They say not that God hates divorce, that, that, that we shouldn't get divorced. Or I understand that God speaks to sexuality in this way, but that doesn't apply to me. I think God loves me despite those things. We're looking and saying, no, I don't need to be holy like he is holy. And I don't need to listen to his words. And I don't need to be in submission to what he says. It's the voice of the day, isn't it? I'm going to self-craft my Christianity. I'm going to take God's words and I'm going to manipulate them and twist them so that I don't have to live in obedience to them. All the while, the holiness of God remains. He's as holy as He ever was. And if we soften that blow, we only do ourselves danger in the future. when we obey God's word, we experience the blessing of God's fullness. We'll look at this again later, but John 14, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, our obedience leads to the blessing of our communion with God. 
By the way, isn't that what's happening here? God's about to give the laws that dictate how Israel will live so that God can dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. In fact, this is the subtext of of Exodus. Every time God draws near to Israel, they only respond with disobedience. So there's a kind of a diagram here that shows us what's happening here in the book of Exodus, right? We see God's delivering work, his powerful deliverance. And then immediately in response, we see the Israelites respond with grumbling and quarreling in 16 through 18. And then God graciously gives his law. And then immediately we break the first commandment with the golden calf and 32 through 34. They can't even receive the instruction about how to pick up manna without grumbling and fighting. And when God reveals himself at Mount Sinai and he tells them not to make a graven image, what's the first thing they do when Moses goes up the mountain? I think there's something worth considering here. See, God manifests himself to the the consecrated. In his grace, he will manifest himself. And we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. See, imagine you wake up in your tent in the camp in the wilderness of Sinai. And you smell the smoke in your nostrils. Your ears are filled with the sound of thunder. The ground is rumbling beneath your feet. And you and all Israel are collected together in the camp. And together you march out to the base of this massive smoking mountain. Everything is dark minus the peals of lightning that seem to kind of come out from the presence of the mountain. And the sound of trumpets is, is coming from somewhere in this dark cloud and hangs before you. And you are absolutely terrified. But then the craziest thing happens because Moses speaks into the cloud and the cloud responds. And the the sound of the response from, from God is like the sound of thunder. The voice of God is even more terrifying than the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and the fire and the whole thing. The voice of God makes you want to cover your ears and fall to the ground. It is so terrifying to be there in the presence of, of God that you're just absolutely relieved when God calls Moses up the mountain and you can go back to your tent. See, this passage gives us a unique perspective of God's power and holiness. The God who first appeared to Moses as a small kind of little tinder fire in a bush now lights up the whole mountain and and shrouds it with smoke and cloud and lightning so that the holiness of God is made manifest to all the people of Israel. He now appears in a mountain of smoke and fire, lightning and thunder. So what happens is that God 
directs Moses to keep the people away and bring the priests near. Look at what he says in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord uh, to look and, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord bring, excuse me, break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up and bring, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break out through, through to come up to the Lord. Excuse me, break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. We see two final commandments. Moses is to not let the people break through in verse 21, and Moses is to have the priests come near. First, verse 21, don't let the people break through. That is, don't let them come up this mountain. Apparently, God is concerned that having seen God's show of glory, these Israelites might be tempted to see more, to break through to come and see this holiness for themselves. But secondly, Moses is to have the priests consecrate themselves because he wants to bring them near. Again, the warning is that God's holiness would break out against them, as we'll see later on in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the fire, the presence of God breaks out and consumes them. See, in either instance, God's warning is the same. Sinful humanity cannot come into the presence of divine God. Divine God. I don't know what I was saying there, but yeah, you get my point. See, here's the tension we have in our text. God speaks to Moses and he says, I've saved you. I delivered you. I took you up on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. I've brought you here to Mount Sinai. I've, I've, in my grace, I've brought you near. But the tension we feel is that when God speaks to his people, he's like, only certain people can come near and everyone else needs to stay away. You sense that? Why did God bring his people to this mountain so that they might never see God? question on the face of this text is this. Can God's grace and his holiness coexist? Can God initiate a relationship with sinful men and women like you and I while maintaining his holiness and righteousness? The good news this morning that we have is that God's grace and holiness can coexist. Let's talk about that. See, eventually, what would happen with this system of Moses going up and down the mountain, all of that would break down. I wonder if Moses is in heaven right now wondering if they could have created walkie-talkies, you know? On the seventh day, God created walkie-talkies, and it was good, right? I mean, he's going up and down, up and down, up and down the mountain, time and time again. He'll go seven times up and down this mountain, climbing up and down. But it's not just that. It's that God will make a tabernacle. God's going to direct Israel to making this house in which he will abide. His presence will abide. And the close of the book of Exodus, spoiler alert, it finishes this way in Exodus chapter 40. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now listen to this, what happens with Moses. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses is driven out of God's presence because of the great glory and holiness of God. In short, God is too much too holy, too big. Moses cannot be in God's presence. And this should make our hearts break, right? How could we be introduced to this massive holy God that exists in fire and lightning and thunder and not go in and see him? How could we not participate with him? That's what we were created for, right? That's why God made Adam and Eve in the garden so that we might dwell in unity with God. And now we're divided by this holiness. We cannot overcome it. But here's the good news, right? There was one who's coming that that could enter into God's presence. There's one who could climb the mountain. There's one, as Psalm 24 says, had pure hands and a pure heart, clean hands and a pure heart. Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus entered into the greater and more perfect tent, that Jesus entered into the presence of the divine because he too was sent out from the divine. He too was divine. He lacked no holiness. There was no part of the mountain which Jesus was sequestered from. Jesus could enter into the thick cloud of God's holiness and live. Truth is that Jesus, like Moses, would climb a mountain Though he was righteous and holy and obedient, he would lay down his life like a sinner. See, when Jesus reached the top of his mountain, Golgotha, his obedience directed him to lay down his life. No one takes his life from him, but he laid it down of his own cord. See, what happens is that you and I can't enter into the presence of God's holiness, but Jesus has, and he laid down his righteous, holy life so that when we have faith in him, we can enter into that holy place. Hebrews 10 says, now we have confidence to enter the holy place because of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because Jesus has entered into God's holiness. Jesus has climbed the mountain. You and I can be brought into fellowship with God through grace. God's grace and His holiness can coexist. They are not mutually exclusive. See, we struggle with this, I think. Maybe not us here, but modern evangelicals. We struggle to not let grace distort the holiness of God. We tend to see God's holiness as, as glossed over because of his grace. The outcome is such that we consider God to be lesser than what he is. We, we are so familiar with the, the provision of God in his grace that we kind of brush aside his holiness. We forget that God is not one to be approached lightly. Let's be honest, I find myself this way in prayer a lot because you're constantly engaging God in prayer, you're saying, oh, Father, help me with this. And you don't stop and consider the holiness and righteousness of the God that you approach. You're so familiar with God's goodness and mercy that we've lost track of his holiness and righteousness. See, it's a distortion of the gospel 
to minimize God's holiness and the expression of his grace. Notice in our passage that, that God brings Israel near in his grace, but also delineates between sinful humanity and his deity. He keeps both things true in our passage this morning, doesn't he? God's grace and his holiness fit together, namely because of the expression of God's goodness in the cross. I love what we already read, John 14. Jesus is speaking after he's uh, done the upper room discourse and he, or after he's done the upper room washing of the feet and the, the, the Lord's Supper and all of these things. And he's speaking in John 14. He says, uh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, you and I know this to be the, the doctrine or the experience of the Holy Spirit residing in us, that God makes his presence in us, that Peter describes that we're a temple of God. Paul describes that we are a temple, that we should live in obedience. We're bought with a price. See, you and I, we know this by experience. When we walk in obedience, we feel God's goodness. The presence of God is palpable and re real in a unique way. But when you walk in disobedience, the, the life and the sweetness of that fellowship with God, it withers. It's, it's this quenching of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not to say that your status before God has changed, but merely your enjoyment of Him has. So this morning, we recognize that through our personal obedience, a, a kind of manifestation of the holiness that God has given us in Christ, our practical holiness, we experience a walk with the Lord that is sweet and rich and good. If you're in Christ, I, I know you've felt this before. I know you've experienced what it is to commune with God. But we cannot deny that this comes through particular seasons of obedience. If we maintain a life of disobedience, we should not experience or expect a, a, a sense in which we would walk with the Lord. I wonder this morning if we might be those who, who carve out this kind of gospel sense of, of God's holiness and His grace. As we look at Exodus chapter 19, and we see that, that God is interacting with his people in such a way that he's expressing his grace to bring them to his presence, but also requiring them of, obedi of them obedience. It's not the other way around that their obedience garners them his presence, but it is to say that our obedience is the thing that allows us the enjoyment of his presence. Right? When, when we are kind of cutting against the grain of God's universe, we don't enjoy God's presence. We feel the weight and conviction of our sin. We, we feel divided and separated from Him. I want to pray this morning that God allows us a particular holiness, graciousness. Let's pray, pray to Him this morning. Lord, we ask now that You would allow us to know of Your holiness, but not to lose perspective of Your grace and not to lose perspective of Your holiness to see the two as perfectly united, especially in the expression of Calvary, that there the holiness that Jesus practically lived out was met with the wrath, do my sin. And now because I am granted the holiness of Christ on my account, I can live in a practice of holiness before your throne. 
Lord, I pray that you would allow us to know and to rest in grace, but to press forward in holiness and righteousness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.